0: Hello and welcome to the General Intelligence Podcast. I am Gregory Gorelick, your host. No idea is too controversial. No discussion is too off-limits. Join me as I discuss some of the most contentious social and scientific topics with leading scholars, scientists, and thinkers. Uh, Today I am pleased and honored to be with Dr. Brian Bootwell. Uh, Brian Bootwell is Associate Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice at St. Louis University. He also holds holds a secondary appointment as, social, as associate professor of epidemiology. His research interests include the biological evolution of various human traits, the biosocial underpinnings of race differences and behavior, the genetic and environmental underpinnings of human violence and aggression, and the intersection of general intelligence with various behavioral outcomes. His published scientific articles have appeared in Psychological Bulletin, Plus One, Behavior Genetics, Developmental Psychology, Journal of Psychiatric Research, as well as others, he has also written for a general scientific audience, publishing essays in the Boston Globe, Nautilus Magazine, and Quillette. Welcome, Brian. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, man. I've been looking forward to this. Likewise. Really excited to with And you. Yeah. Uh, I'm I'm very excited that you are the first guest um, to to commence, um, you know, this this podcast series. And and you know if. if you know, uh we are to judge by the first guest. I think it might be a successful podcast. So
1: thank you so much for joining us. Oh yeah, absolutely. The way you know I was thinking about it, um you only will go up from here, given yeah. that I was your first guest. So well, nothing but room for improvement. But thank you for having me. It's it's really cool. No, of course. It's it's my pleasure.
0: Um and we have a lot of topics to discuss. Um I guess, you know, first of all, I, I want to just hear a, a little bit about yourself, maybe like a, a quick sure. bio, how you came to study criminology, how you came to study uh, behavior genetics um, and ep- epidemiology and, and, and basically just, you know, a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I grew up in a small little uh, rural town deep down in the south, uh, northwest Florida, south Alabama. Um, I grew up wanting to go to Florida state for the uh, purely for the reason that I loved the football team. And so I, I was aware that students got free tickets. And so that was my lofty academic aspirations early in life. But I, it, it was, happened to, to work out. Well, I got to FSU and um, was interested in the criminology program also uh, was interested in the psychology program. So I, I got to take classes in both. And, and as I was nearing the time to graduate, I was a little bit uncertain as to what I wanted to do moving forward. And so I decided to to maybe stick around and try it, try my hand at a master's degree, at least in criminology and see how that worked out. And as you know, as serendipity would have it, my first semester happened to be the first semester. Um, for Kevin Beaver who would eventually become my you know dissertation advisor and he was doing this this work on biosocial criminology and and I really had no exposure to it and and so all of the things he was talking about at least in the context of a criminology class was was all really new to me and all of the other students at Florida State as well and and at first you know I've I've told a couple folks this story. I, I was a bit turned off by it. I, I, I didn't know what to make of the behavior genetics. I was um, unsure about uh, what it meant to talk about genetic influences on personality and even beyond that, moral behaviors. Um, and so I was, I was a little bit off-put by it. But it, it, luckily, it, it, that, those initial concerns turned into a conversation with Kevin which um, spun into a longer converse, conversation, and, and eventually the opportunity to work on a, re, a research project with him, and uh, that culminated with a, a publication, and and also the realization that maybe I could do this for a living. I kind of liked it; it was fun. It was we got to talk about a lot of interesting things, and and I was getting to read a lot of literature that I had never seen before, and so uh, it it uh, it turned into a, a happy accident of stumbling into this world of biosocial criminology and, and all that it involves. Now, you said
0: that you, for, first of all, uh, I actually, um, uh, I went to f- uh, University of Florida for part of my undergraduate, so I guess we should be duking it out, Gators versus I'm sorry Florida. to hear that. That's, um, yeah, that's
1: unfortunate,
0: but well, glad well. <laughs> to get it out. Touche, so. <laughs> touche. Um, right. But uh, it, it's interesting, so your entryway into, you know, kind of the, biological bases of criminology and behavior came through criminology, and you mentioned that you are, that you were a little put off by this whole new kind of biological approach to criminology, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I, I'm interested in exploring that, because obviously, you know, from your current writing, which, which I, uh, I guess I was, you know, I, I became exposed to via Quillette, because we both published mm-hmm. in the same journal, um, you know, you write a lot about this pushback against biology, so I I, I am fascinated as to what are the blocks, uh, you know, that people have against uh, biology and genetics and applying, you know, biological frameworks of understanding to things like criminology and, uh, of course, other fields, too.
1: Yeah, I don't know that there's really a one-size-fits-all explanation. I think part of it depends on you know, who you're talking to, what area they work in, what field they work in. But I do think it, it's probably fair to say that at least one of the things that's common among disciplines in terms of um, hesitancy towards talking about these things are concerns over, you, you know, prior abuses, the sterilization movements, the eugenics movements, the 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 atrocities committed by Nazi Germany, you know, in the, in the name of kind of a, Um, a bastardized version of biology and and so it's understandable to some degree the concerns that folks have over you know fears of discrimination and racism and bias and and so early on those are the things that i think in part prompted some of my own concern about it um and and it took time and a lot of exposure to the work of you know, really prominent thinkers like Robert Plowman, um, Tom Bouchard, David Rowe, um, Stephen Pinker, Judith Rich Harris, and a variety of others. And what you kind of slowly begin to see is that contrary to being um, kind of uh, dangerous or upsetting, what this area provided was a really important context for understanding why humans do the things that we do. Uh, and and the, so the kind of the deeper I fell into it, uh, it, it kind of became evident that if I wanted a thorough explanation of human behavior, this was going to have to be the way that it was sought out. And and so I, that, I think that speaks to some of the discipline, like the discipline-wide concerns. Personally, um, and I don't know that I've ever chatted with anybody about this, I, I grew up in a a pretty religious home and so some of my own personal resistance quite frankly uh surrounded evolution and not understanding you know what darwin's theory really meant Uh, amazingly i was not taught anything about it in high school had almost no exposure to it as an undergrad and so i was coming into grad school uh essentially knowing nothing about um evolution by natural selection and it, any uh, exposure that I had to it started the first year of my master's program when I read um, Dawkins' *Selfish Gene* and, and, and a variety of other books. And up until that point, I had heard, you know, only largely religious objections to to evolution, and and had it it wasn't even that I had necessarily a strong opinion about evolution. It was it was that I was if it. If anything, neutral t- towards it but trending towards uh, concern over it because uh, something in the back of my mind told me that I would have to rethink some of the things that I had previously considered to be true about the world. So, Yeah,
0: uh, that's interesting. So you, you actually – embraced kind of the biological approach to criminology before you even embrace the kind of what is referred to as the ultimate or the distal level approach of, of evolution by, by natural selection.
1: Right. And, and it was a bit obviously looking back on it now. So it was naive at the time because all of these puzzle pieces fit together. Uh, behavioral genetics has a and quantitative genetics is, is a fundamental part of evolutionary biology. And so it, at the time, though, I had at least in, in part of my mind that I could bifurcate the two, that I could study, you know, neural influences on behavior or uh, maybe genetic influences on behavior, and, and I could set the evolutionary stuff aside simply because it made me uncomfortable. Um, and it, again, as, as I just continued to read more, what I found out is that not only is that possible to do, but that it, it's also extremely fulfilling once you start to understand, you know, human beings in the context of, of natural selection.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, was it Ernst Meyer who said that, you know, nothing in biology makes sense except uh, in light of evolution? Absolutely. Right. Um, so, you know, it kind of just goes to show that, you know, when you, you know, have biology class in high school or even in college, if you don't ground you know, these concepts and evolution by natural selection, it's very, you know, you're not getting the full picture. You're not getting, you know, basically the, the, the distal level explanation, basically the right. long and short of it. You're just getting the short of it. Um, I, right. I sort I right. of want to come back a little bit because I think, you know, a lot of what you do now as a science communicator, and I think, and I would consider you as such, uh, would be to, is basically, you know, kind of tearing down these walls of resistance. Um, I, I kind of mm-hmm. want to get back to, to some of these walls of resistance because, you know, you mentioned Nazi Germany uh, and eugenics. Um, I mean, arguably, you know, you can make the argument that that more left-leaning uh, ideologies such as Marxism and communism uh, have been responsible for, for for similar if not greater levels of, of, of death. You know, we're talking about gulags and, and you know, show trials right. and all of that stuff. Uh, so, you know, why is it that particularly there is this pushback against um you know biological approaches as opposed to you know what i would consider uh, and what you know many would consider would be equally dangerous ideological uh, approaches stemming from social constructionism so why is it that that sure. biology has this you know kind of you know taboo feel about it or in your opinion I-
1: yeah no it it really is a great question i i think at least on first blush when we we think about you know some complex part of ourselves whether it's our personality or our temperament or our moral sense right and, and we try to fit within our minds that there could be a genetic component to that or biological component it just feels so incongruous to to how kind of lived experience plays out right we it, it feels like that we acquire our religious beliefs and our political beliefs and our you know just general daily mores that we employ you know as we live our lives it feels like we acquire those things organically as we get older and and it's, that's not to say that, that that's not true to a certain degree but there's something about genetics at first blush that feels very um kind of uh immutable and it feels very deterministic and 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 i think that that is can be very disconcerting uh, if we're thinking about anything other than perhaps a disease or some type of medical condition that has some type of genetic architecture to it. I think that's a, a bit easier um, to process, but the idea that you know our personalities are who we are, they're how we filter uh, information from the world and it's how we interface with the world. And, and so that feels much more fundamental um, to to our experience and, and thus, you know, something that seems almost sacred that it, it's, it's almost as if to say that uh, there's some genetic component to personality is to devalue personality and what it means to be human. Um, and, and I think, I think a large part of the resistance comes from that. And, and the problem is that wall starts to come apart kind of brick by brick when then you just simply ask, well, what in essence, in is different about a biologically deterministic explanation versus an environmentally deterministic explanation, right? So, if if you know key aspects of personality are molded in childhood, say in the first five years, well, how is that a product of the child in terms of anything that they can control? It's not. It, yeah. it, the environment is something that happens to them, and it and it's happening from you know the day they come into the world out of the womb and until you know uh, they start to enter i don't know the first second decade of life or whatever but to me that that really only shifts the, the deterministic explanation to a different variable and so i don't know that that you know in and of itself is really the escape hatch that most people are looking for in terms of being worried about biological determinism right. And so I think the the fears over immutability, the worry about um, human dignity, um, all of those things feed into kind of the resistance we've seen about uh, biologically tinged explanations of behavior.
0: Yeah, it's almost like there's a, a dualistic conception certainly of, of of the mind, and basically, I mean, it kind of harkens back to you know this Cartesian dualism where you have um, you know the mind and personality and 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 you know your psychological characteristics that are that are basically walled off from the body. Um, That's right. So you know, uh, I mean, I, I mean, I, I agree with you completely that you know you're just if you're denying biological determinism, well, you're just embracing environmental determinism. Uh, right. But for some reason, I guess you know people like to have, you know, people might want to have this conception of themselves as as as, as you know kind of. Um, something more than just the body, something more than just, you know, genes, hormones, uh, you know, cells, whatever. Um,
1: and the, the interesting thing is, um, I, you know, I was thinking about this issue a, a couple days ago from a slightly different angle. You know, you think about if someone were to say a family member, you know, perhaps were to say, you know, I don't feel well. I, I have all of these symptoms. Uh, clearly, I have some type of illness. The natural response would be, well, go to the doctor you know, go see a physician and, and, you know, take advantage of of what they have in their, you know, tool bag to make you well. And, and we often don't see that response to any psychological condition that come up that can come up. Right. So if it's depression or obsessive compulsive disorders or whatever it might be, the response is often, well, that, you know, it would be superfluous to go to the doctor because there's nothing biologically wrong. Right. 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 And so I think that this, it's just one example but it speaks to that that kind of dualism that persists out in you know society and even in the academy to a degree the idea that that the human essence is uh, different than our biology and that you know you can seek help for biology but you know what is essentially us is kind of beyond the reach of that yeah.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like, um, you know, the medieval notion of demons haunting you when you're mentally ill is is still alive and well. It's just it's not demons, maybe. It's more, you know, your psyche or, you know, whatever it is, that big question mark. Um, Absolutely. Well, I mean, in in relation to this, um, let's focus on one of, you know, your kind of um, series of, 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 of interests, which kind of relates to this, and it involves parenting and how sure. people are reluctant to admit that um they can't really influence or yeah so people are reluctant to admit that they can't really influence their kids to as high an extent as they thought so it's right. not it's not that the environmental determinism is 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 the king it's
1: other factors so if you could right. talk, if you could talk about that uh
0: that would be interesting
1: Yeah absolutely so it it's really funny i I uh, had heard uh, Stephen Pinker say one time he was giving a talk, and this was some time back. It was right after the Blank Slate had come out, uh, his really well-known book, and he was talking about some of the controversy inspired by the book. And uh, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners know, he covered a broad array of really controversial things, everything from God to abortion to uh, stem cell research. I mean, things that tend to ignite the passions. And and he, you know, he had the observation that the among all of those toxic subjects, the one that tended to get him the most flack, one of them was parenting. Uh, the other one was arts and the humanities, but parenting is a big one. And, and I've had, you know, it's, it''s as a bit of anecdotal evidence, I've had the same experience. Um, I've you know, as you know, I've written on some fairly controversial things, but usually without question, the one that Stokes passions the most is parenting. And I think, part of the the reason that it is you know kind of <clears throat> so shocking at first is due in part to a bit of a misunderstanding as to what myself and my ilk who write on this topic are actually saying so a lot of times what happens is when we write an article or an essay and and talk about the the limited effects of parenting on child development <clears throat> that that gets interpreted to some extent, is saying, "Well, you're you're talking about parents like they don't matter." Clearly, parents matter. Well, yes and no. It depends on what you mean by matter. If if by matter you mean parents are a source of <clears throat> affection and pleasant memories and and you know, um, uh, warm feelings for children, absolutely they are. But that's different from the question of does one type of parenting style influence personality growth in children in a way that lasts for decades, right? And and that the kid then uses when they interact with people in every context outside the home, whether that's at work or at school or in a romantic relationship or in a job. That's a different question entirely. And for decades in child developmental research, the null hypothesis has been <clears throat> well, of course parents matter in that way. I mean, it's clear you, you can take, uh, you can collect a sample of a thousand kids. You can collect information from how mom treats the kid and how the kid acts. And you can do, you know, some statistical wizardry to that and perhaps very complicated, long models looking at growth over years and years and years. And, and you will undoubtedly find a relationship between what happens between caregiver and kid early in childhood and and various outcomes later in life. The problem with that is you have assumed that the genetic influence on those traits is zero. And the reason I say that you've assumed that is because in order to know whether there's anything above a zero influence of genes, you have to study siblings and twins. And for a long time, and even now, the vast majority of social science work, whether we're talking about criminology or developmental psychology, studies one kid from one family. And um, wh- what happens when you study you know, more than one kid per family, either in the form of studying identical twins separated at birth and reared apart, or adopted kids reared together who share an environment but no DNA, um, what you find is that well, two things of interest. One, you find the most compelling evidence available that the environment matters. There is no more compelling evidence for an environmental effect than in a twin study. You also find really compelling evidence that genetic influences matter. So that, that's important as well. What you do not find is the compelling evidence that what happens between home A, B, C, D, E, F, and G, ad infinitum in the population leaves lasting marks on the personalities of kids
0: yeah so just kind of to, to delve a little deeper into that when sure. you're saying that one type of environment matters whereas the one that's in the home doesn't what do you mean by the one that matters is it is it the sure. the the unique environment that each child experiences on his or her
1: own yeah so we should we should probably do a little work to unpack the the definitions here. So in in behavioral genetic work um again kind of unlike traditional social science we're very much interested in the environment but we we take an extra step and sub subdivide the environment into kind of two component parts, right? So the first is what we call the shared environment. That's that involves all of the things in a child's environment that makes them similar to their siblings. So it could involve exposure to certain parenting styles. It could be socioeconomic status. could be neighborhood effects. But it's any effect in the environment that makes two kids raised together similar to each other, right? And then the other component that you hear about in behavior genetics is the non-shared environment, right? And, And this just simply captures all of the unique environmental experiences that kids in the same household have growing up that make them different from their siblings, so whereas the shared environment increases similarity between siblings, the non-shared environment increases differences between siblings. And then of course we have the component of heritability, which captures the influence that genetic differences have on differences in everything from height to conscientiousness and intelligence. And and so we have amazingly now decades of research using twin designs and and as it pertains to personality traits and various indicators of antisocial behavior and, and criminality and violence and aggression, that both the the genetic component and the non-shared environmental component emerge time and again as really important sources of explaining why some individual in the, individuals in the population are either more violent than others or more aggressive than others or more outgoing or intelligent than others. So, Differences, variation, ever how you want to think about it, is accounted for by genes in the environment. It's just not the parenting environment, that shared environment that really emerges as this important source of individual difference.
0: Right. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um so just to kind of like get a simplified version of what you're saying. So if I you know if I have two individuals, one individual is violent, and I want to get get to criminality at at, at some point during the discussion. Mm-hmm. But one individual is is violent; the other is nonviolent. Chances are, most of those differences between the two people were due to either different genetic backgrounds or different unique environmental backgrounds, not to the family life that each experienced. That's right. Okay. Yep. Okay. Um. Yeah. And so to kind of you know push a little bit, because I, I think, you know, I, I accept the, the research, it seems pretty straightforward, sure. even though I know there are a lot of, you know, subtleties, and, 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 and still, you know, and, and even, um, you know, uh, criticisms of, of this research. But laying that right. aside, I mean, it, it does make a lot of sense. So does that mean that parents shouldn't punish kids if kids do something wrong? Does that mean that parents shouldn't reward kids if they do something right? Will
1: it, will it matter? No, uh, well, it's a good question. And, and so, again, in answering that, we have to, again, further parse what we mean by will it matter? And so uh, Judith Rich Harris in a book called The Nurture Assumption, which for me was one of those books that I read and I was not the same after I read it. It, it. it just it was like dropping a stick of dynamite into a lake and then up floated all of the fish of what I used to believe. I mean, it just it changed my thinking about child development. So one of the things that Harris talks about is, you know, the the what we really imagine when we think about parenting effects is that whatever the parents do in terms of instilling values and socializing their kids and those types of things, the kid then transports outside the home and uses it in every context that they encounter. And that's why parenting is so fundamental, right, because parents are, usually are the initial socializers of kids. And so from that standpoint, Harris absolutely acknowledges that, look, the way that a parent interacts with a child might color how the child and the parent interact whenever they're around each other. But that's very different from asking the question, does the child then take that interaction style, the one that they know works with mom or dad or aunt or uncle, and then use it with their boyfriend or girlfriend or uh, employer or their professor? Well. I mean, if we just think commonsensically about that, the answer is no. Because an interactional style with one's professor, by definition, should be different than from one's romantic partner, right? Yeah. I mean, there are going to be stable aspects, and that's part of what genetics do is kind of create the the kind of the set points of our personality. So it's not that we're fundamentally different people in different situations, um, but it's also you know a sign of healthy behavioral growth that a person can regulate their behavior a certain way in certain context. And so Harris talks a, a ton about that. And, and so the other aspect of it is it, both she and I have always found it an odd conclusion to reach um, to move from saying, well, that parenting doesn't explain a vast amount of variance in behavioral outcomes to then saying, well, it's okay to treat your kids in any particular way and so i i I think it was harris originally who used this it's either harris or steve pinker but i love the the analogy so imagine applying that logic to a romantic relationship right so anybody who's ever been in a romantic relationship finds out very quickly that you are not the puppet master of your spouse's personality you may want them to be a certain way but part of what it involves you know to be in a relationship is it loving the person, accepting them for who they are. You know, you may convince them, you know, pick your underwear up off the floor, but you're not going to fundamentally recast their personality, nor would you want to. Um, And yet to then use that as rationale for treating your spouse in in any way that you desire is a recipe for a breakup. Right. And so the same logic applies to kids. You're, you're talking about a moral obligation to another human being, yep. your child. Yep. And, and those moral obligations arguably are intensified when it's your offspring, right? And so you may not be remolding their personality, but you are forming the foundations of a relationship that you would hope would last a lifetime. Yep. I mean, I'll give you a, a really personal example. My uh, younger brother and I are adopted my uh my mom and dad couldn't have kids and so they adopted us uh, a little later in life than when a lot of parents have children and so he and I are again ad- we're adopted in the sense that we share no dna with each other or with our parents and and so i've kind of lived out some of the adoption research and and i've seen the just the vast differences that exist between my brother and i and also between us and our parents yeah our temperaments are different. Our personalities are different, but nonetheless, I have a a storehouse of really wonderful memories from my mom and dad and and things that are uh, priceless to me. And and so, thank goodness they didn't assume that even though they might not have huge influence on my personality, that it meant they could treat me ever how they desired. Because then what what that's a recipe for is just ruining your relationship with another human being and, and in this particular example your kid yeah. and which i think is is a tragedy unto itself okay
0: so yeah i mean it, it makes a lot of sense that basically um you're not going to sculpt a person by just you know you know doing your your out your utmost to, to basically change their behavior by, you know, conditioning and whatnot. But I guess I'm still left with the sense that, well, you know, if you are engaging in a relationship, say a romantic relationship, um, there, there's still some, some give and take. I'm not talking about, you know, manipulation and changing the person completely, but you know, I've noticed in my, you know, relationship with my wife, I mean, there are things that, um, I've changed. I mean, I'm better about doing the dishes. I'm better, about you know, being a little bit more responsible. So yep. there, there's still a little bit of influence there. I mean, right. I, I agree that you're not going to change a person's fundamental you know, sure. predisposition, um, but I guess in that sense, like, could there still be, whether you know, you're talking about romantic relationships or uh, parent-child relationships, could there still yep. be a limited sense of influence, even if you're just talking about the relationship itself? So within the relationship with my wife or within the relationship with my mother, I right. am more moral because of, of the rewards and punishments, because of the
1: conditioning involved. No, I'm, I'm really glad you, you pressed that point a little a little more firmly, because I think it's a really good one. And I, I completely agree with the premise of what you said. Um, so and I, and I don't think someone like Judy Harris would disagree either, right? The idea that is it possible that a certain strategy uh, works really well with a, a child and it, and it puts them in the best situation, you know, to both get along with the mom, but also, say, succeed at school. So if that means, all right, I know that when, when, when Johnny gets home from school, he's hungry. So the first thing I do is give him a snack. That helps him focus on his homework. The homework gets done, and then he has several hours to do whatever he likes before dinner and, and bedtime, right? And so could that, you know, is it plausible that that works better from, say, forcing Johnny to do his homework when he gets home? And then he's starving and not focused. Of course. I mean, and I think those are something that some things that organically play out both with parents, but also, as you were talking about, in a romantic relationship where there are give give and takes and and compromises and adjusting of behavior. And so that's kind of what Harris gets at with context-specific behavior. We certainly would want to see a situation where a child is capable of adapting their behavior within certain rules and within certain constraints and in response to, um, you know, reward or or punishment. And in fact, she makes the very important point that if that's not the case, that if a child is displaying behavioral problems in every context that they find themselves in – home, school, daycare, church, whatever – that's a a marker of potentially behavioral disorder, whether it's conduct disorder or oppositional defiant disorder. And so, yeah, that completely leaves open the door that certain parenting strategies may optimize a relationship with a kid and may optimize their ability, you know, to succeed and, and, you know, kind of keep the peace, so to speak. And one more quick example, um, kids have different interests kids in the same family and, and they start to develop early and, Parents, if they're paying attention, can facilitate those. And so that's another way, you know, there's certainly an active role to be played if a child, say, displays an interest in sports, getting them involved in, in a variety of sports outlets or whether it's music or dance or theater or whatever. So, uh, again, it's, it's, a, it's almost like it, it humanizes in a really interesting way the, the relationship between parents and kids. It, it, it involves treating them like they are their own person. Yeah. And they have their own set of interests and desires and and we know that early in life they have to to mold those interests and desires within a certain rule framework right as any parent knows. Yeah. But it yeah. it's much more of a transactional relationship and and in, you know it it brings with it the acknowledgment that my kid is a person and they have their own unique personality and 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 we're going to figure out how to live together and and give them the best life we can. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um
0: and so, I guess you know just one more, you know one one more, this you know kind of topic to cover under yeah. this frame. Uh, it's interesting that you said that kids are not you know kind of these blank slates. They're not these malleable um, you know kind of pieces of clay that you can mold to your own liking. And there's uh, a really good reason for it, a biological reason. Um, I'm specifically t- thinking about Robert Trivers's. A paper on parent-offspring conflict. Right. And so exactly. if, if children were born to be manipulated, well, that would go against their own uh, reproductive interests. And, no doubt. you know, most people don't really acknowledge the fact that because there is this genetic divergence between... Uh, parents and children. In our species, parents don't share 100% of their DNA. So mom doesn't share 100% of her DNA with the kid. Dad doesn't share 100% of his DNA with the kid. So right. by definition, there are going to be um, genetic interests that are going to be countered uh, within the child to the genetic interests of the parents. Um, right. and, and so it makes sense that the child is not going to just be you know, molded into whatever you know, uh, form the parents want the child to, to be molded into. That's right. And,
1: and one of the things that that, I, you know, I think parents probably realize this to a large extent, too, especially when they start to have more than one kid that we we have perhaps this image of, of this harmonious relationship between parents and offspring. When in reality, what you have from the moment of conception is conflict. Yep. Right. Conflict in utero, conflict um, in in terms of competition over resources in the mom you know, competition for mm-hmm. calories and nutrients. And then after birth, there's still more competition, right? Yep. And, and, and in many ways, there's competition between dad and offspring for attention, for the mom's attention. And and for the kid, that involves, you know, uh, attachment and, and um, feeding. And for the father, at some point, there's going to want to be sexual attention displayed again to maintain the relationship. And so, Yes, there's harmony in the family, but there's also conflict, and there you have countervailing interests, just as you said, and they they align in large part, but they also diverge in very important ways. And so, yeah, that was one of the another one of the great insights I had when I you know started reading Trivers and folks like that. It, it just clarifies so much of what we observe in daily life. And the other point i would bring up is not so much in the realm of biological conflict but you know just in asking the question of where is it important for a kid to succeed and you know where is it important for them to be socially adept the answer is not really with their parents or the generation of their parents it's with their own peer group yep because when it's time to find a mate it, it, you're going to have a, a range of individuals to pick from, and you're going to have to, some extent, be able to fit yourself in that culture so that you can find someone who is willing, you know, to pair bond with you, to pair off and have kids and and, and reproduce. And so, you know, it, it's it's certainly reasonable to expect too that that the socialization aspect of child development, the one the the aspect that's really important, takes place around the kids' peers. And not so much with mom and dad, because mom and dad are are in some ways a given in terms of uh, an imperative to care for the kid. But a mate is not. And and they have to be courted and attracted and, and mateships have to be maintained. And so, you know, um, ineptness in a social group is probably not going to be very beneficial for a child. And, and um, so I think there there's that reason, in addition to the conflict reason and the, you know, the other things that we talked about to expect that the the socialization that clearly happens in a kid is is not largely not a product of parenting and it may very well involve quite a bit of what happens outside the home. Right. Um, so yeah. that that socialization would that be
0: included in that uh, environmental variation that uh, is is not due to the shared environment. The is that, that is that the non shared
1: environmental variation. That, Yep, that's right. And and the other the other thing to keep in mind about the non shared environment is that it remains largely a black box to us um, because among other things, the non shared environment uh, consumes any measurement error that we have in our study, um, and it also consumes uh, just the randomness of life, the chance wiring of a neuron, the you know the chance exposure to a certain bacterium or a, a virus or a disease. Um, these things are by their nature hard to model and hard to predict and excuse me and and so that doesn't mean they're not important they're just not as right. you know as uh, easy to anticipate as we might like them to be in a social science model
0: right that's so. really
1: interesting uh is there I,
0: I just i know we're kind of dragging this topic but it is fascinating Oh, that's fine. is there is there any kind of Research on what percentage of that non-shared environment is due to these random, you know, kind of developmental factors as opposed to so- socialization or what we think of as the social influences on a child, be it from, you know, their, their peers or their, you know, their
1: mm-hmm. uh, their culture, you know, the media or whatever. So I don't, I don't know that we have, I know that we don't have as clear a picture as we would like on what the non-shared environment is. We've certainly tried to nibble around the edges of it and and, and make some progress. So my uh, my colleague Kevin Beaver I mentioned earlier has used a technique that allows you to look at um, not measured non-shared environments using uh, identical twins. And basically what you what you do is look at differences in exposure to certain environments between the twins. So basically what you're capturing is maybe one twin reported having more delinquent peer affiliation than their co-twin, right? So now you've got an environment that could create differences between those twins, and you can use that to predict, for example, uh, whether or not those twins or a uh, sample of them then commit different amount, different amounts of crime, right? And so uh, some of Kevin's work suggests that that could be the case, that, that delinquent peer affiliation, which we've known for a long time is a strong correlate of crime, might well be one of those non-shared factors that we're capturing. That at least when we're studying antisocial, aggressive, violent, criminal behavior. Um, now, when it comes to more more broad personality constructs, uh, you know, I don't know that we have a good handle yet on on what those non-shared factors are. We do have the techniques to investigate some of them, Sure. but yeah. it, it's certainly there's some work that needs to be done.
0: Absolutely. Well, I guess this is a good time to kind of switch over to to criminality. Um, cool. So you, you mentioned that um, peer affiliation, uh, while growing up, has an effect on whether someone uh, becomes a criminal. Um, I was also thinking, uh, you know, based on, on my reading of your work, that it's not as simple as just the non-shared environment because it could be an interaction. It could be that your sure. genes kind of interact with the non-shared environment. So if if I if my genes are some, you know. Are associated with criminality. Well, I could be seeking out those non-shared environments that mm-hmm. kind of uh, perhaps augment or enhance, um, you know, my my oppositional defiance or my antisocial behavior. Um, sure. So, if we can use that as a springboard to a, a kind of a discussion of, of criminality and you know, kind of uh, the genetic underpinnings of criminality that uh, are ignored in in the field of, yeah. of criminology, uh, that would be a, a good topic.
1: Absolutely. So. I think one of probably one of the most fundamental things that, that we've learned in behavioral genetics over the years is it aligns very, really nicely with kind of what we know in, in our common sense dealings with the world. There are things obviously that happen to us, environments that we find ourselves in that are not of our own making, right? That that we either stumble into randomly or someone else foists them upon us. But to a very large and important extent. We go out of our way to non-randomly select ourselves into certain environments. So when choosing a college major, the last thing we would tell an incoming freshman to do is flip a coin, pick it randomly, you know, because that's just a recipe for disaster. Find something that interests you, that you have the acumen and the ability to do well. So that you're not going to struggle, and that it, you know it's something that you might imagine doing for a lifetime, for a career. So, uh, same goes whenever we pick a mate, right? Uh, the example I use with students a lot is, you know, imagine that I was running a dating service and I offered you the opportunities to sign up, and I guarantee you that I would place you with a date at Randall if you signed up for that you you know it's like pt barnum said right there's a sucker born every minute yeah that's it's a horrible idea and so the the kind of the more technical term for it is gene environment correlation mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. idea is that our personality styles our temperaments and our abilities inform the types of activities that we like to do the types of people that we like to hang around and, and, and so that's kind of a natural thing to think about. But if you press that one step further, what that really means is that environmental exposures are heritable. They're partly sculpted by genetic differences. Yeah. And yeah. so that part of the reason why some individuals associate with delinquent peers more than others or you know, put themselves in risky situations more than others is in part a product of the genetic differences that underpin personality. Um, and that's why something like the uh, Kevin study, I mentioned the uh, identical twin difference approach is so valuable because in order to really study the environment, as we've, we've tried to make this point over the years in criminology, you don't have to only be interested in genetics if you, in order to use a twin study or a behavior genetic study. In fact, even if, you're, if your key and sole interest is the environment, then you have all the more reason to use Absolutely. a behavior genetic study. Because it, it, what you want to do is then first pull out the effects of genes in order to really see if the environment that you think matters ultimately does matter. And, and there is no better. I mean, obviously, an experiment is the classical way to do that. But, of course, we can't randomly expose people to delinquent peers and, and, or abuse and neglect or, or what have you. Uh, and so we have to use observational designs. Those are prone to confounding. And, and you know in in the big confounding factor for most of that research is genetic factors and absolutely. twin studies offer you a way around that
0: now. absolutely yeah um, and I mean just 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 to, to make it clear to our viewers um, you're precisely saying that it that it's not only genes you're not nope. you know saying that it's genetic determinism but specifically you know, it's, it's, it's basically a confluence of factors. It's basically a soup, and you can't ignore the genes. And specifically, if you are interested in tracking the environmental factor that is associated with, with criminality, uh, with, with uh, you know success or, 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 or other things uh, in life, um, you can't ignore genes. You have to control for that factor. Uh, Otherwise you're just, you're basically, you know, you're looking at spurious correlations that might not even, uh, you know, be there when you control for, uh, for, for, for genetics. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's,
1: it's a hugely important point. It, it's, it is absolutely not the case that every person who does behavioral genetics is just gene obsessed or gene centric. Some aren't. I, I'm, I'm, I happen to be me personally, very interested in the genetic side of things. But I've also done studies where the entire point was to pull out the effects of genes in order to see whether a certain environment mattered. And in in several of those cases, the results lined up with what a traditional sociological criminologist would think. We found an environmental effect, Mm -hmm. and and that's a good thing to know. It's really just an issue of how precise do you want to be whenever you're testing the association between some environmental risk factor and some outcome. Yeah. Now, I also, I mean, I want to be careful to say it's not that we would argue that all of the other research that's been done in the social sciences is somehow devalued if they didn't use a twin study. That's not it at all. It's, it's imp- knowing whether or not risk factors are associated with certain outcomes is very important, but we just also need that additional step Absolutely. at some point of further unpacking that correlation.
0: Yeah, Yeah. so you're not saying that you need to throw out, you know, years and years of of criminological studies. Absolutely Uh, not. It's just that it seems to me that those studies that have been done that ignore genes are good kind of descriptive factors or descriptive studies, but they're not Mm -hmm. explanatory. They don't explain, well, why are these things correlated? Why is, you know, um, you know... Say you know harsh parenting and envi- why are harsh parenting environments associated with la- later criminology? Right. Yeah, you you know it's a good you know so say you're you know say a social worker and you're taking a a, a kid's history or you're trying to predict you know how well a kid will do and you, and you know you uh, come across the fact that well the the parenting is abusive the parenting is harsh well that's a good you know kind of indicator that something might be wrong and something should be done to a- avert you know um, you know. Uh, you know the, the the kid's future. You know behavior if if he's right. gonna if he or she will become a criminal or whatever. Um, but that doesn't explain. Well, why is that? Is there this correlation between the harsh parenting and the uh, and the the future criminal behavior? Uh, it, That's it's, right. It's, it's predictive, but it's not explanatory. And then you go right. to genes, and you have to and you see that well, both are correlated with a
1: certain genetic predisposition. That's right, and and it really is. I I think it, at first when we talk about you know, an environment being heritable or genetic influences on an environment. That's really, it's kind of counterintuitive. But again, if if we just simply think about, all right, well, is it it often the case that barring some external restriction, right, maybe the person's incarcerated or or they're, you know, of a certain age where they legally can't opt in to certain environments like, you know, a bar or, or whatever. But setting those aside, we, you know, we kind of have a working knowledge of the idea that personality traits to a large extent help help us sculpt the type of environment we want to have um and it's just a, a recognition of whether well, those personality traits are partly heritable yeah and so it, it becomes a very non-random process the types of environments that we find ourselves in absolutely. including risky environments absolutely now is there um are, are there
0: studies on specific types of, of criminal behavior? because you know, when you're talking about crimin, uh, criminal behavior, you're talking about mm-hmm. just general uh, criminal behavior. I mean, there, there's violence, there's nonviolent criminal behavior, there's uh, right. sex, sexual violence. Um, are there any studies on specific types of, of criminal behavior and how and, and, and the extent of, of, say, genetic influence versus mm-hmm. environmental influence on each one of these types of criminal behaviors?
1: So, yeah, there is a growing body that at this point touches just about every outcome you can imagine. So everything from work on a chronic criminal behavior, so these are kind of a you can think of a, a summated index of of different law breaking behaviors, vandalizing graffiti, uh, beating someone up, all of these things done over the course of a lifetime repeatedly. Um, Measures like that that are um, some of the work that my colleagues and I have done are moderately to highly heritable. So there's strong genetic influence. There's also uh, a genetic influence on what we criminologists call the age crime curve, which is the tendency for most individuals in the population to engage in some type of delinquent or deviant behavior from around the time of puberty to early adulthood, about 22, 23 in that range. That's most of the population. In fact, we consider that age normative behavior. Mm-hmm. These folks are skipping curfew, drinking, smoking, having sex, um, maybe engaged in more overt illegally be, illegal behaviors. But either way, that's most of the population. So there's a, a genetic influence on that type of kind of class developmental classification. There's even a genetic influence on abstaining. It's, uh, it's how we refer to the small proportion of the population that don't report breaking the law at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is a statistically rare you know, proportion of, of citizens. It's about anywhere between 5 8%, 10%, so not many of us. But even that component of extreme law-abiding behavior, if you want to think of it that way, is, is partly heritable. And the rest of the effects are assumed by the non-shared environment in all three cases. And so uh, you can move from that onto measures of gang involvement, partly heritable, with the rest of the variants explained by the non-shared environment. Uh, exposure to victimization, again partly heritable, most of the and the rest non-shared environmental effects. Um, so again, at this point, we're continually amassing a body of literature in criminology. Examining delinquency, deviancy, white collar crime—you um, know, more uh, traditional violent yeah. um, types of criminality—all with some non-zero genetic effect in yeah. play. Yeah.
0: Are yeah. there? I guess what I was trying to get at is um, whether there are some forms of criminal behavior that are, say, more sensitive to environmental differences than others. Sure. So, uh, I mean, I, I accept that that most forms of, of you know, just behavior in general, most differences, uh, you know, whether you're talking about criminal or non-criminal behavior uh, have right. some, some genetic component that is responsible for those differences. Uh, but you know, does it, does it vary sometimes? So are some modes of criminal behavior more sensitive to environmental differences?
1: Sure. So, uh, so you can talk about some of the the measures that, that I'd mentioned, that was mentioning like adolescence limited offending, which is how we refer to kind of typically developing, human beings who are engaging in antisocial forms of behavior around puberty, there's a a fairly strong non-shared environmental effect there. Um, And and it's suggestive of things like peer influence um, playing a role. And, I mean, even thinking about it in terms of an evolutionary context, you know, you're reaching kind of your peak reproductive stage at that point, or you're gearing up to reach it. And so you're you're jockeying for competition um, with other males, for access to mates, and you're doing the things that um, you perceive will be attractive to females. Some of those likely involve risky behaviors that are are at least dangerous and at most perhaps illegal. Um, And so, yeah, um, the the more chronic forms of criminality, typically a little more of the variance is accounted for by genetic influences Um, and, and similar not completely dissimilar from abstaining, where there's still a, a pretty, pretty reasonably large non-shared environmental influence. And someone like Terry Moffat, who originally kind of developed these ideas of different, you know, criminal offending trajectories, right? Chronic criminality, adolescence limited, and abstaining. Even someone like, or uh, especially someone like Moffat, who's just brilliant. Uh, argued that even differences like geographic location for abstainers might not afford them the opportunity to do much crime now there's certain i grew up out in the country there's certainly ways to get in trouble out in the sticks (laughs) but perhaps you know perhaps the opportunity um, owing to differences in environments in that regard could play a role so there's uh, absolutely a a role to be played in some form or fashion by the non-shared environment yep
0: yeah um so now that we kind of broached parenting, we talked a little bit about crim- criminality, um, maybe we can go kind of full circle and talk about, well, what does this all mean? Or what, is, what are the implications here? So, you know, acknowledging sure. that genes play a role in most of our behavior, mm-hmm. um, acknowledging that, you know, uh, environments also play a role, um, albeit it's more subtle, it's not as, as straightforward as, as, as has been thought, um, well, so what do we do? I mean, so how do we um, perhaps, you know, remedy some of these traits that, that could be potentially uh, genetically uh, influenced? Um, sure. You know, and, and maybe it harkens back to this whole uh, notion of, you know, well, are gene differences ineluctable? Are they unchangeable? Are, you know, are you doomed to be a criminal? Are you doomed to be, uh, you know, antisocial or whatever?
1: Yeah, I, I think that is, you know, really, it's a fundamental question to ask. It also is a source of a lot of consternation for uh, colleagues who have concerns over this area of research. And I think it's a very important topic to discuss frequently in large part because I think there there's absolutely strategies we can use, techniques we can use, therapies we can use to improve the conditions of life for everybody in the population. To some extent, we already know a good deal about this. And so just from the standpoint of if, if if something is heritable, does that then mean we can't do anything about it? If that were true, cognitive behavioral therapy would be useless for any type of psychopathology or metacognitive therapy would be utterly useless for depression or anxiety problems or um, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders. And we we know that that's not the case, that for, there are certain heritable conditions that are absolutely amenable to purely environmental interventions. Mm-hmm. And so does it mean that we might have to um, assume that there will be parts of the population that aren't amenable to current standard treatments, and so we'll have to think about how to retool or revamp those treatments? Sure. Um, does it mean that in some cases, in, in perhaps more kind of chronic um personality styles, that uh, some type of therapy in addition to some type of medication, whether it's a stimulant medication for attention problems or, um, or any other type of intervention like that, perhaps one we haven't uh, thought of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's completely reasonable to talk about as well. There's a, a researcher, Niklas Langstrom and colleagues who've done some really interesting research on reoffending or recidivism in, in convicted individuals and the use of ADHD medication. And some of his results um, suggest that the effects can be quite positive in terms of uh, regulating the previously unregulated impulse problems of these individuals that perhaps could be quite useful in helping them not come back to prison, yeah. which I would argue that's exactly what we want to do, is, is help them avoid coming back into contact with the criminal justice system. And so acknowledging biological influences on these things certainly doesn 't present a barrier to environmental treatment um, and it, it may help us understand even better what treatments are likely to work and how they 're likely to work, so that we can further tailor our approaches to you know individuals as as different needs arise
0: yeah, absolutely, and I guess I would just kind of harken back to that whole notion of of of, of you know Cartesian dualism where you know, people think that just because something is biological, well, it's immutable. You're doomed to to, right. to to you know live out your life because of your genes or your hormones. But you know, what are hormones? What are proteins? Well, they're 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 you know uh, they're molecules. They're they're compounds. They're chemicals that can be uh, changed. You can you can you know mm-hmm. have have biochemical interventions. Uh, so sure. right now we're focused on social interventions, we're focused on, on you know, socialization, we're focused on education, and that's good, right. but you're completely avoiding the other half of the picture. And right. you know, I think, it, I mean, I agree with you, it's a disservice to, um, to, to society and to the people themselves who are suffering from, from you know, the effects of their own criminal behavior to ignore mm-hmm. the biological
1: component. It certainly, it doesn't position us well to solve problems. Um, you know, I'm, I've always been of the mindset that that more information about a given phenomenon is better. Certainly, better than less information. Yeah. It may not immediately present you with a solution to the problem, but it's certainly not going to hurt in the long run yeah. to have your storehouse of knowledge about a particular issue as full as you can get it. Yeah. Now, I mean, you may not even need to use all of that knowledge, but I certainly want it there in case I need it. Um, and, and I don't view crime or antisocial behavior as, as any different. Yeah,
0: absolutely, and I agree with you. I mean, uh, aside from just the, the pure scientific interest of right. understanding what's going on, you know, we can talk about, you know, the practical applications and the ways that, you know, we can apply the, this knowledge to interventions, but just understanding it is it should be a goal in itself – which kind of brings yep. me to, to this other topic, which is more controversial. So we're talking about, right now, we've been talking about individual differences, differences between some people's crim- criminal behavior versus other people's criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you also do some research on, on group differences, uh, specifically right. racial differences. Um, and obviously that is a fraught topic. Um, yes. You know, of course, and it's been, and it's been so for years for, for, for legitimate reasons. I mean, we Absolutely. know about the abuses of, of, of um, you know, social Darwinism and eugenics yep. and whatnot and, 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 and you know, su- you know be basically suppressing some groups over others. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean that there isn't, you know, some bit of, 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 of empirical reality that is associated with or that does reflect uh, group differences. So, right. if you can talk about some of of that research and how, and you know whether that necessitates uh, racism or, or or bias or anything like that.
1: Yeah. So it, it, you're you're absolutely right. I I don't know that there is a more fraught topic in the sciences right now than race and and race differences. And as you correctly pointed out, it's with good, uh, good reason. We have a a really kind of devastatingly sad history in this country of of how we've treated minority individuals and how we continue to treat some minority individuals and, and to lose sight of that would be irresponsible. And so it needs to be ever in our thinking on this topic. On the other hand, the extent to which groups differ from one another uh, in the population and the extent to which they differ from one another for biological reasons is a, a legitimate scientific topic that we can and should study, in, in my opinion. Um, it, part of the reason I think it's so important to study that topic in within the ethical canons of science is because if 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 scientists are not studying and talking about and debating issues surrounding race and ethnic differences, that is no prevention on truly ill-motive people in the population talking about those differences and and doing so without any pushback from the scientific community if that pushback is warranted. Yeah. And I, so
0: sorry if I could, yeah, well, if I could just kind of stop you right there because yeah. I mean I I agree that you know you having some social belief about race differences um, you know doesn't doesn't say anything about the reality of race differences or group differences or population differences. But if I am a scientist and I am talking about uh, population differences or race differences with respect to something like criminal behavior or intelligence right. or or what have you, doesn't that kind of give give that topic or give those... or Doesn't that kind of give it a certain stamp of approval where it otherwise would not have if it were just some Joe Schmo talking about uh, race differences out of, uh, his basement. So, I mean, is, is there that danger there, I guess?
1: I think, um, yeah. And I, and I think it's a good point. Certainly one that's been, uh, I've chatted about with, with other folks before, could we inadvertently legitimize this topic in a way that, that only pours gasoline on the fire? Yeah. I, I think that is a concern worth having. Um, Again, it, it is a, a concern worth keeping in our, in our thinking, but I don't know that it is a concern that should call for a complete moratorium on the study of the topic. Um, I think that to, to take that approach, kind of as I was hinting at, creates a, a really dangerous vacuum where in the absence of good empirical evidence, um, there will be someone who's always willing to talk about this issue and and to do so for their own kind of selfish ends. Now, the other component, though, that I think is important to keep in mind is that arguments about the equality of individuals and the equality of groups is – a really tenuous thing to try and latch to a necessity of those individuals or those groups being the same Mm -hmm. in their average qualities in, you know, in my mind, and I'm certainly not the first person to articulate this, but I, my position is that we have to completely untether human worth and, and individual, um, uh, equality from, the scientific study of individual differences or group differences. It just The two are completely separate things, um, in large part because it is, if we embrace the idea that it is morally abhorrent to discriminate against an individual because of a certain group that they affiliate with, then it is morally abhorrent no matter what. It is just as morally abhorrent if, the, if that group differs, differs in average qualities from other groups in the population or if they don't. Yeah. And and you know, it's obviously you can talk about the mathematical fa- fallacies of assuming that every member of a certain group embodies the average qualities of that group and and that's an important statistical point too because that's also a fallacy that we should avoid. But the just from the nuts and bolts issue of how do we ensure life liberty and the pursuit of happiness for all individuals in the population? I think we do it by completely untethering that from any idea that individuals have to be the same or groups have to be the same in order to afford them the the protections of life, liberty, and the pursuit, pursuit of happiness.
0: Yeah, I agree. And you know, just because someone say might not have, uh, you know, an IQ that is as high as someone else, that doesn't mean that right. you shouldn't give that person as much respect as you give the other person. Absolutely. But I guess the other question that I have is, well. What is it that gives someone that dignity in the first place? If it's not group differences, if it's not uh, individual differences, even in IQ or or criminality, because you know if we agree that all people deserve a certain amount of dignity and respect, well, what is it that that could give people that their moral worth? Um, is it something that is universal? Something that is shared? Is it something that is unique and if it is something unique well how do you divorce you know things like intelligence things like personality things like criminality from those unique aspects um, I mean I yeah so if maybe you want to respond no to that.
1: yeah no I think it's a it's a, a really good question in terms of where does that come from right and so in the past this has been the appeal of of a lot of religious arguments you know that that we're endowed with a a soul we're made in the image of our creator um and and thus that that means that we are all inherently worthwhile in terms of of our place in the universe and our place on this planet and so if first of all if a materialistic explanation of human beings meant that you had to disregard the worth of individual humans, then we, we should have already cast off the idea that we're worth anything because we know from decades and decades and decades of neuroscience that there is no ghost in the machine, right? There is no ethereal soul that at some point in a pregnancy injects itself into a fetus. That is, you know, a, a product of our consciousness and we feel that dualistic aspect, but that. Our mind is a product of our brain, and so if simple simply being a materialistic organism means that we don't have any worth, you know, then we we don't even have to get to the point of talking about group differences to imperil the issue of worth. And so, I, I think there are a number of ways to, to kind of make this argument. I think Sam Harris does some of the work uh, on that in terms of his book *The Moral Landscape*, talking about the well-being of conscious creatures, the ability to suffer, the ability to feel pain and regret and remorse. Yeah. And not yeah. only that, but you can expand it to the idea that your suffering impacts other pe- the suffering of other people around that person, their family, their loved yeah. ones, so that causing harm to one individual by necessity is never isolated. It ripples out to other people who care about that person. And so, you know, if we want to – I think that's a reasonable starting point to talk about where worth comes from. The, the, the fact that we – everyone, regardless of their the average qualities of their group or even their own qualities, has the neural hardware necessary to experience really terrible things. And to the extent that we can avoid that and ameliorate that, I think that is certainly something that ejects a lot of worth into life.
0: Yeah, I, I, I actually agree. Um, and this is coming from someone who, who you know, is not a vegetarian, is not a vegan. But, sure. you know, I, I mean, I, I every now and, and again, and maybe I should do it more, but every now and again, I beat myself up for it. Because if you are to not to basically not tether things like moral worth, to things like, you know, uh, human universalism or, 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 Mm -hmm. or intelligence or, or differences in intelligence or, so, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, human similarity or human, human difference across individuals and groups, then the other, the other, um, you know, element that you have to bring into it to take its place is this capacity for suffering, is this capacity to feel pain. Um, which does not just stay with our species; it, it goes across, you know, all, all species that have, um, you know, nervous systems or have right. uh, even just, uh, you know, uh, nerves and 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 uh, you know, uh, you know, have receptive uh, neurons that 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 yeah. are are sensitive to things like pain. Um, That's right.
1: And I yeah, guess it, the the minute you the, that starts to gain any traction with you, uh, it you realize how quickly it spills over into other aspects of life, just as you said. And so it's part of the reason I'm the same way. I'm not a a vegetarian or a vegan, but I've often recently thought that the second lab cultured meat becomes widely available, I will be the first in line, just from the standpoint of you know recognizing that that has a lot of capacity to alleviate a lot of suffering, despite it being the suffering of non-human animals. Yes, yeah. and so if you know, again, if if we think that matters at all, it's not tethered to the product. You know, the average group qualities of cows or of chickens or of pigs. It's tethered directly to their ability to live a bad life. Yeah, and the possibility that some versions of life are worse than others, as Harris points out. And and so I think we have all the traction we need in that regard to to untether uh, the worth of individuals from any, uh, group quality that they might have.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just com- comes to show that, you know, when you're intent on truly, you know, living an ethical life and, 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 and specifically an ethical life that is grounded in, in, in science, you mm-hmm. have to, you have to kind of take your own inconsisten- inconsistencies into account. And, there's a certain burden that you place upon yourself. So yeah, I, I, you know, we can talk about untethering human dignity, and you know, just dignity in general from from you know, uh, intelligence and all these other factors. Mm-hmm. But then that would mean that we we have to take suffering seriously, right? And, and that I mean, I guess both of us are inconsistent on that on that account, and it's something that. <laughs> yes. It it just goes to show that understanding human nature is not the same as changing human nature understanding why I, we crave meat uh is is different from actually changing um
1: our our our, our dietary behavior i no, i totally agree but i do think there is a lot to be said for you know just the march of moral progress that we've already seen happen in our species and and the, So as a a preface to saying this, this does not suggest that there aren't areas, you know, that we need to improve on. But as people like Michael Shermer and Steve Pinker, Peter Singer, Robert Wright, all have pointed out various aspects of the increasingly uh, positive growth of our species in terms of lifespans lengthening, health improving, um, resource availability widening. Uh, Throughout the world, and and so um, I think it's it's we can point to this increasing awareness of both of ourselves and the capacity for other beings on this planet besides us to suffer and live a bad life, as being part of that driving force for the moral progress we've seen. The fact that we care about the conditions of livestock and the conditions of poultry farms, and the fact that people do a great many people do take that seriously enough uh that it reaches a point where they alter their lives in pretty uh pretty drastic ways i you know so as you said greater understanding of human nature and human behavior doesn't guarantee that that we will then change the aspects of our nature that we find unpleasant but it certainly seems to be a component part that has to be in place if we want to make a change arguably to the more odious parts of of what we do as humans.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think this is kind of a, a good point to, to wind down the discussion. Um, I actually wrote uh, an essay. Uh, it was published, I believe, in evolutionary psychology, uh, mm-hmm. on, on evolutionary awareness and how understanding our nature as, 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 as biological beings, as evolved beings, is the first step. It's not going to guarantee that we're going to become moral, but it is, it is right. the first step to basically understanding the landscape there that, that we have to work with. And I think it, it kind of includes all of the topics that we just talked about. So by ignoring biology, by ignoring nature, I mean, we risk a lot. We risk a lot yeah. in terms of human pitfalls. Um, is there, could you envision, and I, I, I guess this doesn't just involve, uh, you know, biology, it involves physics mm-hmm. if we're talking about, you know, nuclear weapons. Could you envision any kind of topic or any understanding of human nature that we could, you know, arrive at that, that could be dangerous potentially that could, you know, kind of be a pitfall. And, and, you know, it's better that we don't know this about ourselves,
1: uh, you know, going forward. So in, in principle, I guess my answer would, would be yes, in that I'm willing to accept that some types of knowledge, if pressed into action can be dangerous. So the, again, this is to borrow an example from Sam Harris, but an individual might know precisely how to weaponize smallpox right so they have that knowledge at their disposal would it then be a good idea to post that online for the world to see uh, i think it's pretty clear case to make that no that that's not a, it's not going to be a boon to human uh, human existence to do that yeah now the other the other thing though that that i tend to press back against on that is uh, is you know just based on what we've been talking about, the idea that increasingly understanding ourselves, um, including the aspects of our of our natures that aren't pleasant, our ability to self deceive, our ability to you know to be xen- xenophobic and 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 hostile to out groups, people who aren't like us, all of those things are things that we need to shine a light on if we want to have a, a really good actionable plan of attack in order to to subvert those instincts that, that we f- or those tendencies that we find um, not something we want to retain in kind of a moral secular uh, modern society. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, I, I, I would not though, it would be disingenuous of me to sit here and say that no, I, I cannot imagine anything that we might learn that would be, uh, you know, everything, there's no danger to it at all. I think we've, on one hand, we acknowledge uh, risk by the mere fact that we maintain IRBs on university campuses and we have uh, human subject committees and we have medical uh, ethics standards that we have to adhere to whenever we, you know, do research or clinical trials. We do these things knowing that we've had to make a trade-off at some point between the risk involved in scientific research and the the benefit that we can get from it. And so part of the benefit includes um, not knowing what we might glean at some point just from basic scientific knowledge, but we've already accepted the fact that science is not a free-for-all. We must act within certain ethical boundaries. Um, So I I guess I would uh, couch my answer in that and say that assuming – a researcher is acting in good faith in the prescribed ethical boundaries that, no, I would be unwilling to restrict them from any question they, they might ask. But then that that's also why it's so important to couple human worth or rather decouple human worth from anything that we might um, find about human differences or, or group differences.
0: Right. I think those
1: two things have to happen together.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well – uh, I think, you know, one hour and I, I guess 22 minutes is a good,
1: oh, a good, uh, yeah. it, it did.
0: I, 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 really enjoyed it. And I think, uh, I am, I knew, I knew it was going to be a good, a good, uh, discussion and, uh, you know, you're definitely welcome to come on the podcast in all future, uh, I,
1: you know, episodes. I was going to say as, as first guest, I want to reserve the right to come back. For Absolutely. One no, you
0: have, you have,
1: yeah, you're, you can even overrule me. <laughs> All right, so, well, man, it was a blast, and it was absolutely. a lot of fun and, and I know that we're going to have a lot to talk about in the future, but I, I'm honored to get to be guest number one. I really appreciate it
0: i, I, I I'm honored just as much as you are. Um, so thank you so much, Brian bootwell. Um, and uh, I guess where do you want do you want to say something about where people can find your
1: work? Uh, i I know I mentioned some some and sure. stuff.: Yeah, yeah, no, no i'm uh, I maintain a, a pretty active uh, presence on Twitter uh fs one is my handle um yeah I, anything i do uh whether it's writing for a, a broader audience science audience or or peer-reviewed science that i'm working on usually makes an appearance there so uh it would be uh, uh, cool to, to chat with people in that forum okay excellent all right
0: brian thank you so much for joining us thank you greg we'll right. see you next time you too take care
1: yep